Brooke Shu. I'm an artist and a book lover. I read a lot. I write some, and sometimes I read out loud. How should one read a book? An essay penned by Virginia Woolf begins as follows. In the first place, I want to emphasize the note of interrogation at the end of my title. Even if I could answer the question for myself, the answer would apply only to me and not to you. The only advice, indeed, that one person can give another about reading is to take no advice, to follow your instincts, to use your own reason, to come to your own conclusions. If this is agreed between us, then I feel at liberty to put forward a few ideas and suggestions because you will not allow them to fetter that independence, which is the most important quality that a reader can possess. After all, what laws can be laid down about books? The Battle of Waterloo was certainly fought on a certain day, but is Hamlet a better play than Lear? Nobody can say. Each must decide that question for himself, to admit authorities, however heavily furred and gowned, into our libraries, and let them tell us how to read, what to read, what value to place upon what we read, is to destroy the spirit of freedom which is the breath of those sanctuaries. Everywhere else, we may be bound by laws and conventions. There we have none. You're listening to the Untitled Art Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt. Thank you for joining for our sixth episode, Artist Books and Editions, and the first one we've released in 2019. The first five episodes you've listened to pull from the archives of Untitled Radio from programs we've recorded from the fair since 2015. Today's episode features a panel discussion that we recorded in November 2018, live from the Battery in San Francisco. It was our first foray into live podcasting, which we continued at last December's fair in Miami Beach and will continue to explore in 2019. The panel took place on November 7, 2018, moderated by Juana Barrio, a San Francisco-based curator who is organizing a new section for Artist Books and Editions, launching next week at the third edition of Untitled Art San Francisco. Juana, as the founder of Curiacula, a gallery and bookstore that highlighted the artist's role as researcher and thinker, rather than exclusively as producer of objects, is a passionate supporter of all things relating to artist books, publishing, and editions. For this panel, Juana invited three panelists to join in the discussion. Robin Wright, collector and co-founder of Wright Editions, Margaret Tedesco, artist, curator, and founder of San Francisco's Second Floor Projects, and also V. Moran, publisher and co-founder of Owl Cave Books in San Francisco. So we're just gonna jump right into this panel and go straight into their discussion live from the Battery. I'm getting out of a nasty cold, so I hope my voice is okay. We're a little bit sexy, maybe. <laughs> We're very excited today to be opening a space to talk about artist publications, limited editions, ephemera, different things that are really tightly connected to art. And the panelists that we have today are people who are highly specialized and strongly connected and affected by this approach to art. So I'm very honored to be sitting right next to these three wonderful women. As Kamal was saying, the three of them have 
some relationship with artist publications, but I'm going to mention they do many other things. Also, these are women that wear many different hats, but the reason why they are here is because, for instance, Margaret Tedesco has created a project called Second Floor Projects, and now it's just everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the connection, Second Floor Projects. Robin Wright created an incredible project called Wright Editions. It's been running since 2007, so 10 years too. And V. Moran, also sitting right next to me, <laughs> created a project called Al Cave Books. And um, that's, you, you created it, but you run it with your partner too. Yes. So it's important to mention yes. also people who are involved. Um, so in this case, we're going to be discussing artist publications and different things around this topic. One of the reasons why they are sitting here is because they share many different things in common. One of them, of course, is that they work in this field. Also because they all somehow have a really strong connection with our objects too. Sometimes when we think about books, we think that people just are focusing on that singular topic. And this, in this case, the three of them actually are people who either are collectors or people who commission uh, also artworks or people who think about books through the lens of artworks and objects too. And that has informed their practice and the, and the type of projects that they do with artists, even if it's through artists' books. Another thing also I think you guys share in common is that you are doing this because you are passionate about it. This is definitely, and we should just start by saying this is not a money-making business. <laughs> this is really because you believe that there's something important and interesting behind putting energy and effort in this kind of effort. So, And uh, I'm just going to start by asking you this question, which is what I think we all want to hear, and maybe we somehow know the, history, the story behind this, but... I want to know for each of you, what's the story you tell when people ask you when, why, and how you started doing what you do with artists and art at this moment? I started in the 80s. My base art form, the first art form that I was involved with, was a dancer choreographer. And this, just for clarity throughout the rest of the panel, is Margaret Tedesco speaking. It is very collaborative, and dancing is very collaborative. And so I started with an art form that just led me right into conversations, like a lot of them. And then out of that time, I started to put together a venue there was a few venues, actually, that roamed, and they were in Southern California, and I started putting dance with performance art, filmmaking, writings, readers, in one evening. It just kept going. And so my art form always side-saddled along with curating. It's always been a part of my art practice. I never found it to be an unusual thing. There was a moment in time where there was um, <clears throat> a kind of people not sure what to do with you when you did that, those two things together, like where's your art practice, why are you a curator, you know, like there was a lot of the questions. But ultimately it kind of passed over and I just kept going and it's been... 35 years later or something. I don't know what it's been now. Since 85, probably. 80, and this 80. is now Robin Wright. Well, I started as an art collector, and I was interested in collecting conceptual work. And one of the areas that I was very interested in was uh, conceptual work from the 1960s and 70s. And one of the most powerful things that an artist could do at that time was to put their ideas out in books. 
So there were a lot of artists like Ed Ruscha, Jan Dibbets, Solowit. It was a practice of many artists to create artist books in big numbers and sell them for, you know, very little money. And some of these books now are, are highly collectible almost like baseball cards. So I accumulated quite a few artist books from that period and then moved forward. There was a dealer in San Francisco named Stephen Lieber and he was a brilliant dealer who specialized in something he called extra art, which was sort of this peripheral category of art making. It would include artist books, but also ephemera of different types, art mailers, announcements, that kind of thing. And so my friendship with him sort of evolved, so we wanted to start a business together. And we started Right Editions in 2007, which was such an interesting year because it was just this huge uptick of technology. I think the iPhone came out in 2007. It was a huge proliferation of tech kind of platforms. And so what we did was something that was completely opposite of that. It was based on a physical engagement with artworks in a limited edition. So that was in 2007, and we just kept going. He passed away in about five years ago, so I just kept going. Going still. And this final voice is so V. Moran. I was the bookshop manager at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London for four years. So I was working in the book trade, working in a gallery that had contemporary art. Uh, the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London does not have a permanent collection. It's all contemporary work, cinema. They also have a theatre, so there's performance. So I was working very closely with artists. When they would come in, we would order books that they felt complemented their work. We would also pick books that we felt complemented their work that if they were not there, so if they were an artist who had passed away, for example. So it was also very well known for its theory. So my collaboration in books has always been art, contemporary art and theory focused from that sort of learning curve for me at the ICA bookshop. Um, while I was there, I got to pick what we sold at the ICA and we would often have people come in with things that were really amazing and really cool, but didn't quite fit the ICA, so I'd have to say no to them. And just over time, I kept kind of thinking, oh, I wonder if I should do my own project. I'm not sure how it would work exactly. I didn't think I necessarily wanted to have a bookshop. Um, and then a very good friend of mine, Monster Chetwind, who is a performance artist, she invited me to do a performance and a talk at GSK Contemporary, which was a big kind of performance art thing she did at the Royal Academy. And I just decided to kind of talk about The Stepford Wives, which is the Ira Levin film. And through that also decided to do sort of like a gender queer feminist book swap. It was at a time when saying the word feminism felt really different as well, especially in the UK and people were a little bit surprised that we were giving books away. So really the core of Owl Cave has been free. It was only later that we started to sell things that we wanted to support artists who made things and make sure that we could pay for what they did. But we did this cool book swap and just weeks later, people were coming up to me in the street and just saying, that was amazing, you should do another one, you should do something else, and it sort of grew out of that. So I founded it myself, but then my partner, Brian, who's over there, is a major collaborator as well. So I just want to shout out to Brian. And one of the main things we've done is collaboration. We've always worked with other people and artists. We moved to San Francisco in 2010. And since then, we've had two physical bookshop spaces in San Francisco. So for 10 years, we've been running a contemporary art bookshop, really focusing on new work made by artists and also theory and how those intersect. A lot of politics 
a lot of uh, contemporary culture. And then in March, we decided to close the bookshop space and we're focusing now fully on publishing. So it's been exciting to have that transition over time. So 10 years of a bookshop and now flowing into publishing. Wonderful, thank you so much. When do you think about artworks made in series, whether they are publications or limited editions, when do you think they became popular and meaningful as a medium, both for artists and their audiences? When do you think that was, like historically, or at least in your own biographies, when did they become important and relevant? And what do you think that is still important? I mean, you just mentioned, for instance, the iPhone coming out the same time that you founded Right Editions, right? So a very common question when you're in book panels is like, but what about technology? What about digital books? And I, we are not going to talk about that because they're completely different things. But I want to hear from you why do you think these things are still relevant and actually even more important than maybe a few years before. Well, it was interesting to hear about when you were talking about the books you were publishing earlier than when I came to know about editions. But I, I think, yeah, it was when I was at working in the book trade in London. So actually my first job in the book trade was at Magma Design Bookshop, which is fully focused on design, fashion, that kind of thing. And we sold lots of very expensive editions, things that were very collectible and had a very cult following. So I think that was the first time I realized that a book or a piece of artwork could kind of crossover in that way. I don't know if this is the right answer to the question, but I take my books and my objects to some of the art book fairs, and those art book fairs are extremely well attended, and I notice that the age group is maybe in their 20s and 30s for the most part, and they all are so enthusiastic, and um, they are very interested in touching the works and interacting with them, which is kind of hard because you really don't want them to touch everything. I mean, you know, it's there, these are your things, but it's really important that books are looked at and, and talked about. And so from going to these art book fairs, I get the sense there's a whole new audience and that I think is um, a motivation to continue. Mm -hmm. Um, my memory of when I discovered this world was in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, printed matter in New York. I felt like I fell over a rainbow. I walked in there and there was everything could be a book in there. There was a paper suit hanging on the wall and I can't remember which artist this was at the time. And it was all written on. And some of the things that are on the table over there are actually from that time frame. Um, I just have this, I, I really, I wanted to just sit on the floor and just hold everything and buy everything. And it's like the book fairs, it's like eye candy. You know, you walk across the table. I always, I've worked 10 years of book fairs now and I have to put blinders on because there's so many things that you want to touch and hold and buy and have. And so it, it was definitely this trip, these trips to New York where printed matter was this place and it was making a lot of these kinds of things and also then I started to see how the artists that I was around were you know also the zine culture the zine culture was you know anybody who was a visual artist who would most likely have a band and a zine <laughs> you know it was kind of like in that you know those were the things that were happening around those people and um 
So, you know, I just got to see that whole world unfold to where we are now with it, which has become, you know, the book fairs have become quite the thing, and now they're very competitive to get into, and et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's why we're creating a special section and title. <laughs> <laughs> just stay tuned. <laughs> well, just following what you guys are talking about, I wanted to now ask you what book change somehow the relationship that you have with books? What was that moment when you were like, okay, there is a whole new world here that I have to keep exploring? I already have some slides that you guys sent me, so I think Robin goes first. Mm -hmm. okay. So these are Ed Ruscha's, um artist books. They were done starting, I think, in 1963. Some of them may be familiar to you. I don't know if these are all 16. I, I see one that might be missing. He did these for years, and here is a poster of them in the early days, and you can see that some of them are for sale for $3. Now those are going for like three to five thousand dollars <laughs> if you can find them and and so um, they've become like objects which is sort of interesting instead of being books people collect them like objects and they put them in little vitrines and you know you're not supposed to touch them or look at the insides anymore and I, I just think it's sort of interesting I mean it sort of shows the the movement of how a object can change over time And the artist's intention, which, you know, was to sort of spread his ideas into the world, has become quite different because these are now traded like baseball cards. So I guess it sort of inspired me to be interested in this category because of the sort of incredibly efficient way that he put these books out in the world. Each book had a different idea that he was trying to explore and work through. And so he never, you know, he basically, with most of them, started anew, and they sort of explore things in a very different way. And cumulatively, they sort of explain what that artist is interested in. And so that seemed really great, and I wanted to produce things like that, you know, where an artist was really putting their best thoughts forward in a very modest way, in a humble way, that was something that could be accessible to all. And so that's where I started. Okay, so this is Four Corners Books. They're a British publisher. So they actually started, I think, in 2003. So they started, and Eleanor, who's one of the people who is the publisher there, is a friend of mine. And one of the things I love about the work they do is that they take work that's already been made and then remake it. So all the books you see here, Dracula and Vanity Fair and so on, are all, it's actually called the Four Corner's Familiar series. So they're all familiar books that you would know. And then they have remade them with artists and designers. So in most cases, the texts are fully accurate. So the Dracula is the full text of Dracula. But the artwork is in the making of the book. And they're very beautiful objects. Um, you can also read all of them as you would normally read them. And I just love the way they collaborated. So it really was bringing sort of fresh life to some of these things. And some of the work is quite old. Uh, one of the books actually we have on the table over there is Canterbury Tales by Chaucer. And it was remade by Monster Chetwind, who is my friend I mentioned earlier. And, you know, not everyone has read Chaucer, especially these days. It's very old English. But she has sort of re-brought it to a new audience. So I really liked the idea that they were making new things. They do a lot of other publishing too, but this really stuck out to me as something that felt very contemporary, even though often the texts were very old. And they still are selling now, so even the ones that came out even 10 years ago are still selling. So this 
idea that people are interested in, in buying these old texts made in a new way. And I think that appeals to me on so many levels because it's bringing new audiences both ways. So someone who might be extremely interested in Chaucer might discover the artist who made that book. And someone who uh, follows that artist might read Chaucer for the first time. So I really like that collaboration of the work. So the prompt, Wana gave us three prompts, and this one was a book that changed your relationship with books, not necessarily an art book. So this book I discovered in the late 60s. I used to go to a bookstore in L.A. called The Bodhi Tree, and it was quite a wonderful bookstore. It may still be around. I'm not sure. I didn't look it up. But um, I found this book, and it's kind of an unorthodox uh, Paul Reps did a series of books, and this one, Ten Ways to Meditate, and it has a wood cover. It came with a sandpaper bookmark. You could sandpaper this book, and you could whittle it away completely. You could make it disappear, the cover disappear. And I thought that was so interesting. It sort of set me up to think about how books could be made and transformed. So. Okay, so now thinking about your own books, the books that you have made, which book do you still you keep thinking about somehow that you keep going back to, something you made or that you were somehow involved with? So as I said, I've actually only been publishing more recently. I have collaborated on other publishing projects with other people, but Owl Cave only really started publishing really officially last year. So this is Untitled by Ben Toms. He's a photographer based in London. He is very well known for his fashion photography, but this was the first book that he had done of his personal artwork or his other work, his non-commercial fashion work. And we decided to make it as a postcard edition. So these are actually quite large, thick postcards. They come in a box. You can certainly keep them in the order they are and, and view it as a book and kind of turn over the postcards. But you also can send them. We were very interested in mail art. We sent postcards a lot to each other. He's in London, we're here, so it was a way for us to keep in touch in long distances. So this is a book that Elishiva Birnoff did with me about three or four years ago. She, she's here. I don't know if you know her work. She worked for a number of years in an archive, a contemporary book archive, Stephen Lieber's estate after he died. She was a person in the office for years. So she spent a lot of time alone with artist books. And I um, wanted to do a, something with her. I... It's very difficult and expensive to produce artist books just because they're very expensive. And so I tried to dissuade her from making this book. But then, but then she had this great idea. And it, it's the simplest book I think I've ever made. It's basically um, the only text is on the cover one day. It's reflective. So um, you, sort of like a silver foil kind of um, surface on the front. And then the interior is 12 pages, starts in black and goes through a full day in the landscape and then ends up with a black page too. So you, you get this sort of poetic, meditational narrative that is just, I think, because it's so simple, it just has great power. At least it has resonated with me over the years. And so I, this is one of my favorite books, artist books, 
ever. I just really love it. And basically, as you turn the pages, you see the light shifting from full daylight to this sort of gloaming on this page. Okay, so now, let's keep talking about books, but now maybe a book that you somehow find inspiring or unusual, either a book that you've made or that you would like to make or that someone has made, but basically something unusual. And why do you find it unusual or kind of inspiring? I think this doesn't quite answer your question. I did the box set, Artists and Editions, about five years ago, and it was to honor my former partner, Stephen Lieber, and the book front that you're seeing on your left-hand side. Okay, this is the interior of that box. And so I have wanted to do a book of his catalogs. It was a project that uh, Lee Markopoulos started, and she got quite far down the line in producing it. And then it ended up with me after she passed away. And so in the process of publishing this book called Stephen Lieber Catalogs. Yes, it's, it's long in coming, and it will encompass his 53 or so catalogs, which were dealer catalogs that listed conceptual works for sale over the period of like 15 years. I think he started in 1993. And they're very conceptually rich because he would riff on other people's catalogs or artist projects. So, I mean, I hope it all comes through in this book we're in the process of producing. We're challenged and we're working really hard to, to make it um, all come clear. So you'll see this in the future, I hope. That definitely answered my question. That's very inspiring and unusual. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Okay, now the big scary question. No, it's not scary. A big question, distribution. See? <laughs> I knew you were going to be scared. Well, you all were talking about your website is a way to have things for sale or to promote what you're doing. There's also fairs, right? You all go or have gone to fairs. But what are your thoughts on distribution, especially because you work with artists and with art? I wonder if somehow your distribution style reflects on the type of work that you do or the type of artists that you work with because maybe that's somehow connected or not. I'm the most lo-fi in this whole I'm not in the same league with these two as far as publishing because um, my stuff is all handmade at home. I have a 13 by 19 printer. Um, I'll just say this. I had a gallery in my apartment for 10 years. I invited a writer with every show. The writer was invited as an artist in the show, not as a writer to uh, support the work on the walls or in the exhibition. If they chose to write about that, then they could. But generally speaking, the writer wrote their own piece. And I've worked with 65 writers to date. I have like an anthology, and they were all newly commissioned writings. But each and every one of those pieces was handmade by me. <laughs> so distribution comes out of my pouch. <laughs> and um, at the gallery, when I had the gallery in the apartment, people would show up and they would purchase them there. Or I'd get somebody mailing from far away who knew the artist and said, I'd like to have that writing. And they were limited. So I only made 50 to 100 each of them. Mm -hmm. And so that's that. Mm -hmm. But in your 
case, it's different. No, but that's interesting because it's such a personal and intimate way to work with this too. Mm -hmm. So you have to have that um, human contact, basically, mm -hmm. to have access to, to your work. Well, um, I, I've done maybe 15 editions, and they're all different. They're not just artist books. There, there was a blanket. There was a record. There were ceramic works. And all 15 had different strategies for distribution. It's part of the, what I enjoy figuring out, but also they need a different strategy. The artist comes from different places, and they may have a relationship with a commercial gallery. Often the gallery will help me distribute the edition if it's something that they have a market for. And that is the best way. That is my favorite way because then they take it and I give them a percentage and they put it out into the world in a way that I can't. And they're also, you know, dealers and that makes a difference. And I've done a book that I've given to distributors like Sternberg and I prefer not to do that because the chance that I'm going to get my money back is very low and it's frustrating they have my book and they're putting it out under their name and in their book stores so no one's really watching out for it in the same way and these are things that I spend a lot of time on and I have some sense of proprietary ownership of and so that's not my favorite way I I don't on the other hand, want to be driving the books around in my mini and delivering them to the bookstore. But it happens sometimes. So, in other words, I don't have a set way of doing it. And if you guys have any ideas, you can tell me. I'd love to hear your ideas. So, but. Well, I'm coming from a very different place. Working in bookshops for 10 years, we relied on distributors to get us books. And then Alcave actually became a distributor. So part of what we do is distribute the work of other people. So for me, it's almost the opposite. It's, it's a very wonderful coexistence. It's a way to get work out beyond just the network that you have. And I love, I love what you guys are doing. It's so personal. I was wondering if you can share one or two things that you treasure in your life that you learn from working with artists. Well, I, I did this edition, it was sort of a compendium of 14 different artists in a box. So they, they each contributed something to this box that it was sort of like an exhibition in a box. So it had a sort of a theme and it had a timeline. So 14 artists worked with the same timeline and the same criteria and it was so interesting in terms of what they contributed and their creative process. Some needed more time. Some had exact plans, right, fast, you know, delivered within weeks. And some people dragged on. And I just thought it was so interesting to see how these 14 artists dealing with the same um, structure came up with such different ways of producing an artwork and I, I, th I just thought it was just incredibly interesting the creative process and how complicated it is and how individual it it turns out to be I, I just thought that was a learning process for me too yeah definitely learning I think you both touched on that the, the community aspect of it is important but I think mostly it's really radicalized me the people I've worked with in the art book world, people who want to make artwork in some kind of book form or some kind of paper form or whatever it happens to be, have pushed a lot of boundaries and really made me question a lot of things about myself and the world I live in and how I approach things. And 
I'm constantly just realizing how much further things can be pushed. And yeah, I just, I don't know, it's made me more of who I am and who I'm proud to be as I get older and as I in, you know, interact with people in different ways. But really it's radicalized me, honestly. I feel like much less afraid to say what I think and to stand up for people and to stand up for what I think is right and to kind of build communities in that way. And I hope that it continues to do so because that's like changed me a lot. Like I feel much more sure of the things that I know that are right and that I want to support. And I've changed as a person. I think I think I mentioned this earlier when I was talking about doing feminist book swaps and kind of at that time it was like, oh, you're a feminist. That's like so wild and, you know, but it's like, I am a feminist and very proud of it, but I'm definitely beyond that as well. And, and the intersectionality of it has been really important to me. And I, I'm just growing all the time with it. So I hope I continue to do that. And I hope that people who see the publications around them continue to do that and make sure that they are intersectional in their, their way that they're approaching it. Thank you. Okay, last quick question. Which non-art book would you recommend us to go out now and buy? <laughs> Surprise question. <laughs> Something, whatever, a book maybe that is like a classic in your life. I, I don't know, but I just started reading that Ninth Street Women book, Five Women, Grace Hardigan, Lee Krasner, Helen Frankenthal, and John Mitchell, and Grace Hardigan. And the story goes is that these women had so much pushback in their career and that all for their whole careers they were compared to men and yet somehow they sustained and prevailed. Um, and so I, I think that would be a book that... Um, I haven't finished it yet. It's 800 pages. Just, <laughs> just warning you, just saying. But it looks like that would be a good thing for us to read now. Thank you. I guess, well, it's Anne Carson, who's a poet. It's not an art book, but a year and a half ago, I think it came out a year and a half ago. Would that be right? The, the Yeah, the box set. It's a beautiful encased pamphlet book of Anne Carson's, and it's incredible. It's hands down, buy it, or get it at the library if you can. I think try and read some sci-fi. Ursula Le Guin is <laughs> amazing. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for being here tonight. And thank you to thank the you three of you. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, Untitled. Everything in the world exists in order to end up as a book. This is a quote from the French poet and bookmaker Stéphane Mayamé. One estimate notes that nearly 130 million books have been written in recorded history. That's roughly 26,000 books every year that humankind has been known to keep written records. One estimate from the Population Reference Bureau estimates that more books have been written than there have ever been humans born on Earth. So yeah, everything in the world may have existed to end up as a book. Join us at the third edition of Untitled Art San Francisco next week, where Juana Burial will be presenting a newly curated section of artist books and editions, featuring publishers, distributors, and bookmakers, including Robin Wright's Wright Editions, Permanent Collection, Culpa Press, Three Star Books, V. Moran's Owl Cave Books, the Wattis Institute, among others. Thank you.
Contributors were involved in the program we heard today, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Juana Barrio, Margaret Tedesco, Robin Wright, V. Moran, Matt Bernstein, and Brooke Sue. And finally, a thanks to my team at Untitled Art Fairs for joining in my belief that by tuning out, you can tune in. The original soundtrack you heard at the beginning and end of this episode are by Celia Hollander, from the score for Madeline Hollander's performance, Mile, originally performed at Untitled Miami Beach 2015. I'd like to end today's episode by quoting from John Cage. Wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. So I'd like to invite you to keep on listening and think of listening as another way of looking. Tune in later this year with new episodes for 2019. We'll be traveling around the world bringing on new guests and contributors. In the meantime, we'll be podcasting live from the fair next week in San Francisco, from Pier 35 in the Embarcadero, January 17th through the 20th. Signing off, I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt, and I hope you'll join us again on the Untitled Art Podcast. Mm-hmm.